Hello, welcome to another episode of The Lancet Voice. I'm Gavin. And I'm Jessamy. And we'll be your guides through the world of health and research here at The Lancet. As always, we'd love to hear from you, uh, wherever you're listening to this from. And you can contact us on podcasts at lancet.com. That's podcasts at lancet.com. And we would love to hear from you. We'd like to hear what you want to hear um, and what you think of our episodes so far. Yeah, we would absolutely love to hear some feedback generally. Um, But on this week's podcast, we'll get going with that. We've got Jessamy talking to Caroline Criado-Perez and Roxana Moran about invisible women and cardiovascular disease, which is super interesting. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Yep. And uh, also we're going to be listening to an interview with one of the doctors who's on the ground in Wuhan, China, and has just submitted a really interesting paper. um, And we've just published it. It's got lots of fascinating information. Um, So I'm looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, also on this episode, one of our editorial board poses a very interesting question a few weeks ago. She said, have you ever thought about NASA accidentally bringing back microscopic life from Mars and it damaging the health of everyone on Earth? I said, no, I had never thought about that. But thankfully, NASA are running a whole program because they have thought about this eventuality. And amazingly, we got interviews with uh, people running the program who have job titles like Mars Object Curator. I know. I love this hypothetical world. It's just incredible. <laughs> but first of all, Jessamy, you've been thinking recently about women being ignored in health research, especially with International Women's Day being recently. But more specifically, uh, there's really interesting facts about uh, how women have been ignored in cardiovascular research. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic and one which has been going on for decades, really. I mean, one of the most sort of famous example is the Harvard Physician Survey, which was started in the early 80s and basically has all male physicians. And this is what we base our evidence of aspirin being useful for cardiovascular disease on. It's on 100% men. It's not on any women. And this kind of bias has continued through cardiovascular disease through the decades, really, so that when I was at medical school, you know, we learned risk factors for men sort of the typical way that a male, that someone might present to A&E as being um, having chest pain, which, you know, spread to your jaw and down your left arm. And those are male symptoms. And strangely enough, women have completely different symptoms. Really? So what are some of the symptoms that women So have? their symptoms tend to be that they don't have any, they don't have any chest pain. Um, and so you miss 50% of the diagnosis for patients, you know, and, and they therefore have poorer outcomes. And that then goes to other things like risk factors, you know, our classic understanding of what risk factors are, you know, smoking, obesity, diabetes. They are, of course, involved in women's risks as well, but women have additional risks, like if they have preeclampsia during pregnancy. That, for some reason that we don't fully understand yet, but it's obviously due to sort of vascularity of their um, arteries and veins, means that they have more risk of cardiovascular disease. All of these things, which we've only really just started looking into over the past kind of five, ten years, um, you know, which hugely affect women's outcomes. Right, so you were just saying just then, in ways we don't understand preeclampsia. So we're still at this basic level of research. We still don't really understand why it is that preeclampsia makes women have uh, more of a cardiovascular risk. It is kind of amazing, really, isn't it, that this, this way that um, health research has treated men as kind of like the base model. As the will. default, which is what Caroline's book is all about. You know, it's a fascinating, very well-argued book, which basically sets out this default universal male that invades every aspect of our life and is completely pervasive from town planning to safety planning for cars 
um, jobs, media, education and health, which is most surprising. You know, and we've got it wrong in The Lancet. I sort of just looked through some of our papers on cardiovascular disease over the decades and, you know, immediately we f- I found one which was published in the early 90s um, and looks at blood pressure thresholds. And basically, this was when we were trying to decide whether if you give anti-hypertensive medications, there's a threshold below which it doesn't matter if you get any lower, then cardiovascular outcomes aren't going to improve. And we published this kind of systematic review um, of patients and studies. And in that, there are 500,000 individuals, of which 96% are male. And yet the conclusions that we draw from that are universal, that all individuals will have basically no threshold below which if you keep on lowering their blood pressure, then you will improve their cardiovascular outcomes. And the paper states that with almost certainty, and yet there are no women in it. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, isn't it? I was reading one of our editorials uh, from about 10 years ago where we, where the Lancet was writing about this uh, subject. And it was saying that women with heart attack symptoms were less likely to receive aspirin, less likely to be resuscitated, and less likely to be transported to the hospital in ambulances using lights and sirens mm. than men because all of these symptoms get missed. So I'm very excited to hear you talk to uh, Caroline and to Roxana about these uh, about Yeah, these and topics. of course Roxana is leading our women in cardiovascular disease and that kind of is our sort of aim and and our goal is to try and you know bring move that move that forward and so it's really exciting to see what comes out of that commission well take it away so caroline criado perez you are an activist and the author of invisible women um, which is a brilliant book where did the book start and what was your kind of stimulus for writing it before i discovered about the the gender data gap in medicine and how that obviously is also connected to this default male bias, you sort of think of medicine as the one place where you really would be looking at all the bodies. <laughs> um, you would be looking at male and female bodies. You wouldn't expect it to to be like this. And so to discover that, you know, researchers were saying that the female body was too complicated to study, despite it being half the world's population the body you know that half the half the world has was incredibly shocking and to discover that not only that but that this gap meant that women were being misdiagnosed and were receiving drugs that caused them adverse drug reactions was incredibly shocking and 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 really i couldn't believe that women were so much more likely than men to be misdiagnosed if they had a heart attack you know that was the first thing that i discovered and i just found that incredibly shocking. So perhaps, Caroline, you could tell us a little bit more about what you found out about cardiovascular health. The sex differences in cardiovascular health have been known about for, for two decades now. You know, we've known that women are more likely to die following a heart attack, in fact, since 1984. And it's one of the most well-documented sex differences in, in medical health because we've known about it for so long and you know we know that there are different risk factors for men and women you know diabetes is a higher risk factor for women smoking is a higher risk factor for women obviously there are so many reasons why this is relevant and important now but what are your major concerns looking forward for me the major urgency is in in tech because tech infects every single area when i say tech i mean ai it's being introduced into medicine, it's being introduced into criminal justice, it's being introduced into human resources. And, you know, as I said, the, the capacity there for things to go 
horrifically wrong is absolutely enormous. And it also feels like the sector that sort of certainly historically and, and seemingly still has been most blithely unaware of the social impact of the work that it does. There's still this this sort of heavy bias within the tech industry that it's just about numbers. You know, I, I felt that um, I'm not sure if listeners will be aware of James Damall. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, but the famous or infamous, I should say, Google memo guy who wrote a thing about how women are no good at tech because they basically women are empathetic and men are, you know, numbers people. And what you need in tech is numbers people. And and that is such a telling and worrying attitude that is still far too prevalent in tech because tech is not actually about numbers. It's about people because it is interacting with people. And so you need to have a very high awareness of the, of the social issues into which you are introducing your numbers. So Caroline, what can we do about this? So it's slightly chicken and egg. Everything sort of needs to happen at the same time. The data collection needs to get a lot better and you know, the people designing the algorithms need to be a lot better at recognising that there is an issue with this data that they are using to train the algorithms. I also spoke to Roxana Mehran, who's leading our Cardiovascular Health in Women Commission from The Lancet, and she has lots and lots of names and roles, but uh, the way she described herself is someone that cares about women's health and cardiovascular outcomes, and it was a real pleasure to speak to her. So, Roxana, you've obviously worked in the field of cardiovascular disease for a very long time, and it's one of the major killers around the world. Where are we now with cardiovascular disease and women's health? Of course, in the field of cardiovascular disease, the plot thickens in a very, very interesting way. First of all, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women around the world. Mm -hmm. And it's expected to increase because of the global increasing rates of obesity and diabetes, as well as the fact that we are not paying as much attention to it as we perhaps could in developing countries. So Roxana, how have we got ourselves in this situation? Why do we have this problem with cardiovascular disease in women? The other major issue about cardiovascular disease in general is that the cardiovascular healthcare professionals are often men. Uh, Of the medical school graduates now in the United States, we have over 51% who are women. Get into um, internal medicine training, we start to see about 47% or so women, which is still a really good number. But as soon Mm -hmm. as we go into the field of cardiovascular medicine subspecialty, that number dwindles down to under 20%. So what is this? Why is this happening? And it's kind of the same as like if you look in the corporate world, uh, seeing uh, not enough women in leadership positions and not enough women being recognized and the talent really, really uh, getting lost in the pipeline, you know, and we call it sort of a a leaky pipeline. Uh, And Mm -hmm. what happens is that, uh, you know, there aren't many women in those leadership uh, places. And so the mentorship is lacking and women don't get the opportunities. They do not have the important recognition that they deserve. So Roxana, what effect has this sort of lack of women in cardiovascular medicine had on patients? For as long as I've been in cardiology and it's over two decades, we've known that women with cardiovascular disease are under-recognized, under-studied, under-diagnosed, under-served, under-treated. 
in every female specific areas, like in the postmenopausal women, in women um, who are having pregnancy related complications, we have very little data because the data are mostly on men. And we don't understand what that means if a woman has a pregnancy-related complication such as, you know, having diabetes, gestational diabetes, and uh, preeclampsia. What does that mean in, for her cardiovascular health? What about the woman who presents with breast cancer, receives chemotherapy, lives and survives her breast cancer, which is what's happened beautifully with uh, the cancer uh, initiatives? Uh, these women will die of cardiovascular disease because we do know that radiation affects cardiovascular health of these women. So there has to be initiatives in the oncological world. And it's a whole new field of cardio-oncology, a whole new field of cardio-obstetrics. These are all female-specific areas that we have to pay attention to. So how can we overcome this problem, Roxana? Uh, what's, what's nice to see is that there is this global and um, uh, kind of um, universal recognition that this is going on everywhere and that we have to make changes to our social context of how we, the societal way of how women are, are looked up, uh, you know, are perceived and what we need to do to make those changes happen. So I founded an organization called Women as One that's focusing on uh, promoting talent in medicine. And we're starting with cardiology because it's the most broken house, as I call it. And we're working really, really hard to promote and, and seek the talented women and making sure that they're, they're there. We just have to see them. We have to put different glasses on. We have to start thinking about understanding what the um, obstacles are for these women and trying to make it a little bit better for them and pull them up. And that's really what we're doing at Women as One. And I think working with a lot of the societies hand in hand uh, to be sure they're recognized. So listening to those interviews, it's staggering, like the lack of basic research that's gone into women with cardiovascular disease. And it, it seems incredible to me, although I know it shouldn't. You know, it, it's one of those things that's both surprising and disappointingly unsurprising at the same time. Yeah, I think it is a major failing in medicine. And it's one of the interesting things that really comes through in Caroline's book is that, you know, you sort of walk through life as a woman, not really recognizing things. And then you read something like Caroline's book, or you talk to someone like Roxana, and you suddenly realize it's everywhere. And that medicine has really done a disservice to patients, um, and to, you know, to women in particular, in having just not being alive to this topic, not being focused enough on the different physiology between men and women, which we're all aware of. We all know anatomy. Mm. We were all taught basic science. Um, and yet that hasn't been implemented in actual medical practice. And it's, it's a sad situation that, you know, I, I really hope that the Lancet Commission can, you know, try and add some important research to yeah, I mean, as bad as we've heard things are, we did hear a note of optimism there from Roxana at the end. Do you personally feel that, so going beyond cardiovascular disease now, do you feel like a consideration of women is something that's becoming far more obvious as a pressing concern in science and health and medicine? I think that there is, you know, I think it's it's sort of part of the time as well, you know, the Me Too campaign and every all the other sort of movements that have happened over the last two years have kind of, you know, culminated in this focus on this particular issue 
And I guess there are lots of different different aspects to it. You know, Jocelyn, who's one of our editors, and Liz, who have been running the sort of Lancet Women's Gender series and 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 issues. They've you know really focused and highlighted the importance of women in STEM and in medicine. And you know that is part of the problem is that women in you know these very sort of driven and male orientated. Um, careers find it difficult to progress even if they start off they might not necessarily finish up with a with a big jobs and then it's a sort of self-perpetuating cycle so you know there's that issue which Roxana spoke to but then there's also the problem that it's actually sort of embedded in the actual you know the whole way that medical research is set up and, and what we look into mm. so it's a very difficult one to untangle and I do think that there is hope but I I sort of echo Caroline's concern that now we're moving into this AI period, there is this risk that these biases and this assumption of a universal male default can very easily be amplified because we're using big data and we're assuming that what we put in is good and for the most part what we put in is not recognising women. Our Asia executive editor, Dr. Helena Wong, managed to grab some time with Professor Bin Kao recently. Now, Professor Kao was the first researcher to release findings on the original 41 patients in Wuhan, China, who were diagnosed with COVID-19. His follow-up research, which was released on March the 9th, looks at comorbidities for COVID-19. Uh, so, Jessamy, just briefly unpack that little bit of jargon for me. What is a comorbidity? Well, a comorbidity is essentially a health problem um, that is an added extra. So you are a man, you might be 35, and you have a comorbidity, which is diabetes and hypertension. So it's a kind of an extra disease that for the most part is chronic. That means that you can't treat it to just go away. It needs to be managed. And that management is either through medication or lifestyle implementations or through potentially, you know, other surgical or medical procedures. So in terms of something like COVID-19, it's a bit like a multiplier almost. Exactly. And I think, you know, what's really important about this particular paper is it it's 813 patients that were sent to the two sort of largest hospitals in Wuhan that were the referring centers. So if a hospital couldn't deal with a patient, then they'd send them to those two places. Um, and of those 813 patients, 613 patients were kind of taken out. And that was because they hadn't got an outcome yet. And what's particularly important about this particular study is that we don't have any research where there is a definite outcome. So all of the research so far has been on patients that are in hospital where their treatment is ongoing, whereas this is at the end of the story. So it's patients who either died or were discharged. So the important kind of clinical things I think to take away from this are that the results show that what we know, which is 97% of people present with a fever and with some shortness of breath or a cough, and that tends to last for 12 to 13 days. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's really... Amazing to get to speak with Professor Cao on the ground here in Wuhan. So um, I will hand over to Helena. Hello, I'm Helena Wong, Asia Executive Editor of The Lancet. In this podcast, we're discussing one paper about clinical cause and risk factors for mortality of adult inpatients with COVID-19 in Wuhan. Join me today is Professor Bin Tao, the co-founder's author of the paper. Hello, Professor Cao. Hello, Helena. 
I'm aware that you have been working so hard in the front line of Wuhan for almost two months, and this is also the second time for you to publish in the Lancet regarding COVID-19. Would you please tell us how can the results of this study be helpful for the future control of COVID-19 in China, and are there any lessons for other countries? There are three main findings in our study. Firstly, we investigated the clinical cause of the disease, including duration of fever, dyspnea, and cough. The median duration of fever was about 12 days in survivors, which were similar in non-survivors. But the cough may last for a long time. There are 45% survivor cases still had cough on discharge. We also observed that in part of the non-survivors, the dyspnea even occurred after the fever had dis- disappeared. So defibrillations may not indicate the recovery of the disease especially in critical ear patients. In survivors, dyspnea would relieve after about 13 days after the occurrence of shortness of breath, while the symptom would last until death in non-survivors. We also illustrated the time of occurrence of different uh, complications, such as sepsis, ARDS, acute cardiac injury, acute kidney injury, and a secondary bacterial infection. The clinical course showed a whole picture of the progression of the disease, which could help physicians to predict what will happen in the next. Second, we found the median duration of virus shedding was about 20 days from onset of illness among survivors, but the virus was continuously detectable until death in non-survivors. It is the first time to review the duration of virus shedding in COVID-19 pneumonia patients. The information was very important for antiviral treatment and for the strategy for isolation and discharge. Thirdly, the factors including elderly age, higher dimer, and higher SOFA score on admission could help clinicians identify the patient with, with higher risk of death. Besides this, we found that lymphopenia will recover from 10 days after onset of illness in survivors, but last until death in, in non-survivors. Similarly, dynamic change was observed in lactate dehydrogenase. We also observed a genetic increase of L6 and serum ferritin in non-survivors, along with the deterioration of the illness in non-survivors. We think that dynamic monitoring of these markers will help clinicians to identify cases with high risk of death as soon as possible during hospitalization. Thank you. Thank you. And that's very helpful to learn, especially the viral shedding time. And you have given us very good explanation on the implications on practice and clinical practices. Also, we found that fatality rate about 20 of AIDS is extremely high in the cohort. So would you please ex- explain why there are much higher fatality rate of this cohort in this study? Actually, uh, the uh, the twenty eight percent in our study is not really a, a fatality ratio of COVID nineteen. According to a recent national survey, the case fatality ratio outside Hubei province is less than one percent, and three percent in Hubei province without Wuhan. And in Wuhan city, the fatality ratio is around four to five percent. Uh, why the, uh, the, 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 the ratio of 28 in our, in our cohort is because that we only include patients in the two designated hospitals, Jinnai Hospital and Wuhan Primary Hospital. 
both hospitals were the only designated hospital during the months of that December and January, and all the severe cases from other hospitals were transferred to these two designated hospitals. So our cohort only include the severe and critical patients. So in our cohort, we do not include mild or moderate cases. This is why in our, in our cohort, we have very high fatality ratio, it's around 28. But, but when we look at all the cases, the fatality ratio is not so high. Thanks so much for the explanation. Thanks so much for spending time to elaborate on the important findings of your latest publication alongside Professor Tao. And we also would like to use this opportunity to express our sincere gratitude to all the Chinese frontline house workers as well as researchers in the combat against COVID-19. So, yeah, fascinating, like I said, to hear from uh, a doctor on the ground there in Wuhan and um, absolutely amazing to think what they must all be going through trying to keep this outbreak uh, in check in Wuhan. Exactly. And I mean, some real sort of clinical nuggets that I think come from this paper, um, you know, the important ones are that the, the median age range is 56 and 62% are male. Um, and that half of all those patients have comorbidities and those most important comorbidities are hypertension and diabetes. So that just kind of gives some kind of an idea of the type of patients that are potentially more susceptible to this disease. Um, what's interesting is that you know, not so many patients had sort of respiratory problems like COPD, which you would expect for a primarily yeah. respiratory disease. And that might be because, you know, it's not so well recorded. There might be issues there, but it's a sort of, it's, it's an interesting potential. Um, and then some of the other really interesting things that I thought, that I thought from that conversation came through were that, you know, the, the illness onset to discharge is 22 days of immediate time. That's an extremely long time for health systems to be having to deal with patients who are going to be in hospital for 22 days. Yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about, isn't it? Because, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's so fast moving across the world at the moment. But we're seeing relatively little output at the far end because of how long this disease takes to run its full course. Exactly, which is why this paper is, is so important, because it does show us the end of these people's journeys. Um, you know, some other interesting things with the spiral shedding load, which is, you know, 20 days median. That doesn't necessarily correlate with infection or your ability to infect people, but it's a, a very long time to be having the virus multiplying in your body and to be testing positive, which is one of these other issues that we're still unsure about is why patients are able to test positive for COVID-19 for such a long time. Yeah, I mean, as we said in the first episode, there's still so much to understand about this disease and obviously we're seeing uh, restrictions being put in place all across the world at the moment it's uh i mean it's definitely a very interesting quite scary time i think it is a scary time um you know from from kind of that paper it's scariest for people who are older um for people who have comorbidities and and that was the kind of you know the the risk of mortality increases if you're older, if you have increased D-dimers at admission, and if you have a higher SOFA score, which is like um, a score basically that shows how unwell your different organs are when, from a kind of intensive care point of view. So finally this week, Dr. Helen Brooks, one of our editors here at the Lanza Voice, had a very interesting question she posed us in, I think, actually the first editorial meeting we had about this podcast. Helen, tell us a little bit about how this interview we're about to hear came about. Well, NASA has been flying to Mars as part of its space exploration program for the past 20 years. 
And on these missions, they have gathered evidence that suggests that billions of years ago, Mars had wet conditions that probably lasted long enough to support the evolution of microbial life. And later this year, NASA is planning to launch the Mars 2020 rover mission, which will collect and store a set of rock and soil samples. And they're aiming to return them to the Earth in the future. And the evidence that they've collected in the past has suggested that uh, Mars had wet conditions billions of years ago that could have uh, possibly sustained life, um, microbial life indeed. And in this mission, they are hoping to collect and store a set of rock samples and bring them back to Earth. And in that context, a key question is, could anything that they bring back to Earth from Mars theoretically adapt to living on our own planet and possibly cause harm? Yeah, that's a really fascinating idea, isn't it? That how do people kind of plan for something that they have no idea even exists? Yeah, exactly. And we imagine uh, bacteria living at body temperature, but work's been done on Earth where we've seen that actually uh, so-called extremophiles, um, which are bacteria that can exist in quite harsh conditions. For example, they found bacteria that live in um, mines, in acid pits, and also in um, uh, minus 20 degrees Celsius under ice layers in um, Greenland and things. So perhaps some of these similar conditions might be seen on Mars and might also harbour extremophiles, and we might see some of that there as well. Yeah, and it's, I guess it's fascinating to think how they might interact with human health or with like biodiversity on the planet, ecosystems, all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, exactly. So the thinking is that maybe some of these organisms might infect organisms in similar conditions, uh, in the sea, for example, where the temperatures are very low, um, or perhaps bacteria in space might use minerals or metals as substrates, and therefore there's an outside possibility that they could, if they got out, damage building structures um, or even natural features. Uh, and there's an even more outside chance, but this would be a high a uh, high-risk um, thing to occur would be if um, small polypeptides existed, um, su such as prion-like proteins, and they would have the capacity to maybe even infect um, small mammals or even large mammals like humans. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to think about. I'm glad NASA have thought about it, though. You know, oh, yeah, me too. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm excited to hear this interview. So, uh, yeah, take it away. Uh, so I'm joined today on the phone... Uh, by Lisa Pratt, Aaron Regberg and Andrea Harrington to discuss some of these things. And um, Lisa, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am uh, NASA's planetary protection officer, uh, very much engaged in backward planetary protection, which is protecting Earth from inadvertent um, contamination by uh, a, a, a possible extraterrestrial organism or biological agent, and we really haven't worried much about that since um, the Apollo era, but with Mars sample return now on the horizon, uh, black backward planetary protection is a major topic in the office right now. Hi, yeah, so my name is Aaron Regberg. I am a astro-materials curator at uh, NASA's Johnson Space Center, and I'm also the 
planetary protection lead for the center. So I am the uh, NASA's Mars sample curator in the Astromaterials Acquisition and Curation Office at Johnson Space Center. What type of life do you imagine we might see on Mars? We th- we think it might not uh, be exactly the same as what we know on Earth, but its underlying chemistry, the kind of uh, molecules that it's made up of, will be from the same classes of compounds that we know, and it'll be, you know, that we will be able to identify it if it's a completely separate origin of life with a separate evolution. Um, If it's one origin and it's in two places, Earth and Mars, um, then it'll be, you know, quite interesting to see how um, how evolution and the very different environmental factors on Mars might have put pressure on a Martian life form to evolve different kinds of mechanisms to, to, to gain resources for metabolism or molecules that would help protect it from an environment that's harsh in a very different way from Earth. It's happened in the past where there can be a false positive. So that's one thing that we're also considering, making sure that we not only protect the Earth from the samples, but the samples from the Earth. How would we prepare and protect ourselves from organisms that we don't yet know exist? It, 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 is, it, it is an enormous challenge to try to think about um, risk from an organism or, or just a, a biological entity like a, like a prion molecule um, coming from another planet and arriving here um, in a sample that we've, we've intentionally returned. But I think there's a very high degree of confidence that this is something we can, we can manage. Um, the sample will be uh, robustly uh, contained, uh, four, four layers of containment, or five, depending on how you count the sample tubes. Sterilization of um, some of the External surfaces of those various um, compartment layers is something that's being considered right now to um, give us assurance of safety beyond containment. And then the samples will be um, immediately uh, transported very safely in, in additional earth containers to a safe receiving facility. You mentioned prion proteins there, Lisa, and in my mind, prions have a reputation for being very destructive in mammals. And I wondered if you could tell us more about whether prion-like proteins might be present in the samples that we bring back and uh, what we might be able to do to uh, mitigate any damage from them. Well, I think that's primarily um, an an end member, the, the sort of the most extreme... A strange thing one could imagine uh, would be just a a molecular complex, a macromolecule that was made up of similar sub-elements to something terrestrial that could somehow interact with us. But again, that interaction would require it to to be released and to find a host. So we primarily use prions as uh, an indication of a type of molecule that would be very difficult to deactivate uh, or, or if you want to use the word uh, sterilize. I mean, for just a molecule, I think I'll stick with deactivate. So we, we use it as an end member for thinking about how high a temperature for how long a period of time with or without a second chemical modality, what would it take to denature um, and deactivate something like a prion if it was 
um, on a surface and not contained in the sample container. So what are the chances that uh, organisms that we bring back might be hazardous to us, hazardous to the ecosystem, or hazardous even to buildings, for example? The, the idea that, that something that we bring back from Mars could be hazardous to the ecosystem, is it's a, it's a low probability event because this is a very different ecosystem than what we, we think exists on Mars currently. Um, but it's, it's, high, it's high risk, you know, so if it happened, it would be very, very bad. Um, I, I, again, you'd have to be living sort of continuously in, um, in contact with, with all of the different organisms that we have in, in our ecosystems on Earth in order to become um, pathogenic or, or hazardous. It's not something that you, you sort of evolve at least we, as far as we know, not something that you evolve spontaneously. Um, so it's maybe a slightly higher risk than, than specifically being hazardous to human health. Um, but I still think it's a, it's a very low probability event. Um, there isn't, so to, to briefly describe the, the sort of systems that, that we're um, thinking about building to, to contain these samples, they're going to be primarily constructed of materials like stainless steel and Teflon and glass. Uh, and these are pretty inert, non-reactive materials from an abiotic or biological standpoint. There isn't a lot of energy to be gained from trying to degrade or alter those compounds. Um, so it's, it's certainly something to be concerned about and something to pay attention to, but I, I think it's it's the 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 likelihood of, of us something of, of us bringing something back that is already has the metabolic potential to to oxidize or degrade stainless steel, for example, is is very very low. Just because there, as far as we know, is no stainless steel on Mars except for what we 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 put there. Um, and so there would be no sort of ecological pressure to, to force an organism to evolve to be able to, to interact with those type of materials. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I um, think that we can feel very reassured by your advice and um, it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Nasa, um, for having these people do these incredibly interesting modeling sort of, of what might happen with all of these hypotheticals i want how you apply for this kind of job yeah right. i think you've got to be okay with uncertainty very much so. <laughs> which would not be good for me <laughs> <laughs> i think i think i would be into it you know yeah. with a kind of philosophical background yes i think you could be definitely be relatively useless when it comes to actually understanding the science and the microbes involved but I think it's an absolutely fascinating job to have. Yeah, the wide-scale disaster that might incur, you would be okay with philosophizing about. I think so, <laughs> yeah, until it all went horribly wrong, in which case <laughs> I would uh, deny all knowledge. But um, it, it's amazing that it's their job to go into the office and think about the completely unknown biology we might bring back from Mars and what it might do to Earth. I know. Oh, God. I mean, yeah. And obviously they were very... They they very much stressed that there is no risk, basically, to the Earth. But, you know, I'm glad that it's their job to tell us that there's no risk to the Earth, rather than it being a surprising sci-fi kind of moment. Yeah, I think the precautionary principle definitely applies to this. <laughs> 
thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Lancet Voice. Uh, you're already listening, so this could be obvious to you, but you can find us anywhere you usually get your podcasts. Uh, if you want to subscribe and leave us a nice review, that w- would really appreciate that. And uh, as we said in the intro, drop us an email on podcast at lancet.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what you'd like to hear, and tell us about health where you are. What are your kind of concerns around the world? There's something we're really interested to hear about. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Yes, thank you for listening.